mean, one of the things you can rely on is that Labor Day Sunday is going to be one of your lowest crowds of the year. And Jerry gave me the number, and this morning we have more people than we've had since we came back in May. That doesn't make any sense. You people should be out doing something else. I should be preaching to nobody. But anyway, it's good to see everybody that's here this morning. And again, everything's a little bit backward, but that's all right. We're thankful for uh, how God's leading along the way. Um, we're going to look at Matthew 25 as we continue to deal with this upside-down world. And if you have your Bibles, look there. If uh, you didn't bring your Bible, the passage is on the back of the sermon outline this morning. Matthew 25. We are continuing through a um, sermon series where we're talking about the end times and, and what we've uh, been doing the last three weeks, last two weeks and this Sunday, is in Matthew 24, Jesus gives a lot of explanation about um, the end times. And then in Matthew 25, he tells us what you should do with that knowledge. And we, we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the fact that we're supposed to be ready um, uh, and and that's, that's an important aspect of it. We talked last week about what it means when he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And this morning we moved to the third of the stories where Jesus is saying, okay, if you, if you know I'm coming back someday, if you know this is how the, the things are going to wind up, here's a, a final thing that you need to know in how you live your life. So we're kind of dealing with the, the way that we live our life as a consequence of the knowledge he gave us in Matthew 24. And what we're going to do after we've done that this morning is next week we're going to go back and start working our way through the timeline of what the Scripture does tell us about how everything ends and, and how uh, uh, things progress. So in Matthew 25, we're going to start in verse 31 um, and, and, and uh, read down to the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. He will put the sheep on his right and the goat on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. 
then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to get into this passage in Matthew 25, but before we do that, in order to understand why he says what he says, you need to look at a couple other passages, one uh, in Ephesians and one in James. And so if you have your Bibles, flip over with me to Ephesians for just a second, in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, because what Jesus says here in Matthew uh, is a difficult, uh, there are some difficulties with it. We need to understand how he is able to say that and what exactly he means by that. So if you have your sermon outline, as we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, is this passage teaching salvation by work? Um, as Jesus is talking in this passage, he says, uh, when they say he's going to separate the, the sheep from the goats, he says, okay, you did this and you did this and you did this, instead of saying, did you believe in me? And, and that kind of sounds like he's preaching salvation by works a little bit. So we need to look at Ephesians and James and then go back to Matthew to understand what exactly he's getting at. So the first thing in trying to understand that is the Bible is very clear that salvation comes by grace through faith. The Bible is very clear that salvation comes by grace through faith. So in Ephesians 2, let's look at verse 8. This is the, the best-known passage on this in, in the uh, New Testament. And so we want to be very clear on how someone is saved. In Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So what does that mean, grace and faith? It means that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and as he died on the cross for our sins, he offers us forgiveness and a changed life. And as he offers that to us, I cannot come to him and say, look, at, look Jesus, at all the stuff I've done, or, or look at the family that I come from. I cannot earn my way to his salvation, but rather he gives it to me by grace, that is, as a free gift. The thing that I do bring is that I have faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and therefore I believe in him and want to follow him. And so he gives me salvation by grace as I come to him by faith. Amen? And so it, it happens by grace through faith. So we understand that there's nothing we can do to earn it, but we also understand that we have to believe in Jesus. Everybody isn't saved. It's those that receive what Jesus has done for them. That's the faith that we bring. And so verse 8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and that's something that's really important for us to understand and we want to hold on to because if you get that sideways or if you don't understand it right, you can get in all kinds of trouble. But having said that and having established that, we need to continue to read to see what Jesus intends to do with that salvation. Look at verse 9. Not by work, so that no one can boast. So we aren't saved by our work so that we can't say, well, well, look at how great I am and look at all that I have done. So if we're, if as verse 9 says that I'm not saved by work, then that obviously would mean, I, I guess, then I, I don't need to have any works, right? There doesn't need to be anything that changes in my life. Well, Paul immediately answers that in verse 10. Look at what verse 10 says. For we are God's handiwork, created by, created in Christ Jesus to do what? good work, to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we, we have to get this right. On the one hand, 
I am saved by grace through faith. He gives it to me as a free gift, and I come bringing my faith in, in, in Jesus Christ. But as he does that, the consequence is not that I would say, look, I've been saved because I'm a great person, and look at all that I've done in order to earn that. But instead, verse 10 tells us, having been saved, he, uh, he has created us, he has renewed our life so that we can then go forward and make a difference for Christ, so that we can do good work, so that we can be, as a changed person, somebody who lives a life that is more like Christ and goes forward in order to make a difference in the world. So we are not saved by our works, but we are saved to good works. And so as we understand that, it's important to grasp that uh, salvation does not come by our works, but salvation causes the works that need to happen in our lives. Which leads us to the second thing. Flip over with me to James chapter 2. And we need to look there um, at a similar passage that, that unpacks this also. So the second thing is this. First of all, we talked about salvation comes by grace through faith. The second thing is a profession of faith that doesn't result in a changed life is a lie. A profession of faith that doesn't result in a changed life is a lie. So as we look at James chapter 2 and verse 14, James writes there, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, which echoes back to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and, and, and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that. So what he brings out there is the fact that in that last verse, you know, you can say you believe in, in God, but, you know, the demons believe there is a God also. It's not just a matter of saying you believe in God. It's a matter of following Christ and allowing the, the outflow of what he has done in our lives to make a difference. And so true a salvation, it comes into our lives by faith, but then it flows out of our lives in work. There's an old analogy, and I've used this before, about if you have a rowboat and you're going to try to get across a, 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 um, a lake, you know, if you only have one oar on your rowboat, then you're going to go in circles one way, and if you only have the other oar, you're going to go in circles the other way, but if you have both oars, guess what you're going to do? You're going to get to the other side. And so as we think about that, what James and Matthew and Ephesians tell us is that I need to have faith, but I also need to have works that show that that faith is real in my life. And that's the thing that moves me forward. And so we are called to have a faith that shows itself in our works. Amen? All right, now we go back to Matthew. Because now we're ready to understand what Matthew has to say. And we need to grasp this because, again, as I said at the beginning, this the, the, the phrase I said last week, well done, good and faithful servant. Everybody knows it, but it gets yanked out of context. And people don't understand. We talked last week about the fact not everybody hears well done, good and faithful servant because we need to 
be out there doing what he has asked us to do and, and, and taking risks with what he's entrusted us with in order to bear fruit for the kingdom. In the same way in this passage, what you have done to the least of these, it, it, it's taken as a, well, you know, you should be nice to people. And we need to understand this passage says so much more than that. As we, as we look at the passage, again, the context here, if you look back at 31 and 32 and 33, it's not just a statement of, well, listen, go, go, you know, if you have a chance, be nice to people. The, the, the context here is verse 31, when the Son of Man has come in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. The context here is final judgment. And so what is being said here isn't just a, if you have a chance, you know, do this, it's a nice thing to do. But it's so much more than that. And we want to pull three things out of it in order to understand what Jesus is pointing us to. So knowing that salvation, true salvation comes by faith through grace and that we then go forward in good work. What is Jesus saying here? Three things. Number one, live knowing that Jesus is looking at how we respond to those hurting around us. Live knowing that Jesus is looking at how we respond to those hurting around us. As you look at um, 35 and 36, 34 tells us, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance to the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And when he then is going to go on and explain why they are in that, going back to Ephesians, we would think he would say, because you, you believed in me. Because you believed in me, so come on in. And he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And he can say that because, to go to what we were just talking about a minute ago, Salvation is by grace through faith, and we understand that, but it outflows in the way that I impact people around me and in the way that I live my life. And so as we look at this, one of the outflows, one of the impacts of living a life in Christ and I want to be like Jesus is that as I look at those around me who are struggling, as I look at those around me who are hurting, as I look at those around me who are barely making it, it's going to be a part of my life that I'm going to go and try to help them. I'm going to go and have compassion for them because Jesus had compassion for me. And so I go forward believing that I need to make an impact on those around me and not just say, listen, I'm saved because I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to go live my life the way that I did before and concentrate on me because it's all about me. No, instead, he tells us here that as we have Jesus in our lives, truly part of the outflow of that is going to be that when I see somebody who is hungry, I have compassion for them. When I see somebody who's thirsty, I have concern for them. When I see a stranger, I look after them. When I see somebody in need of clothes, I'm going to do something about it. When I see somebody who's sick, I'm going to try to help them. When I see someone who is in prison, I'm going to go and assist them. And so as we understand that, we need to know, as we look at that, to go back to what we were talking about in James, there is a, a consequence to true salvation. Jesus, or James says, that faith without works is what? It's dead. Faith without works is dead. And so as I live my life, to go back to the idea that it is uh, final judgment here that Jesus is talking about, Jesus is giving us insider information ahead of time. He told us that we need to watch in the first of the three passages. He told us that we we need to, to use what we have in order to bear fruit for the kingdom in the second passage. 
And now he's telling us in the third passage, do, do you want to know one of the ways that salvation looks? Do, do you want to know what the outflow of it's going to be? Here it is. When you see somebody who's hurting, you want to help them. When you see somebody who's struggling, you have compassion on them. All these things are, are the natural outflow of true salvation. And so we need to look at our lives. Sometimes we get this sideways and we think, okay, the outflow of true salvation is I got saved and I show up and sit for an hour on Sunday morning. Praise Jesus, I'm saved. That's not what it says there. He separated the sheep from the goats and he said, where were you 11 a.m. on Sunday morning? You were at Madison Baptist. Come on in. It's a good thing to be at Madison Baptist. It's a good thing to be at church. It's a good thing to worship. We're supposed to do that. But he's paying attention here to what we are doing to the least of these. We need to understand that and grasp the importance of that in our lives. Way back in 1921, Lewis Laws was made the um, warden of Sing Sing Prison, which was a horrible prison at that time. And, and he was warden from 1921 to 1937. And his, he and his wife were both Christians. And his wife uh, began to come and visit at the prison and, and took an interest in the prisoners and, and would go. He, he found, she found one that, that um, uh, uh, was in need of learning how to use Braille. And so uh, she, she taught him how to use Braille. Later she found somebody who was deaf, and so she learned sign language to be able to communicate with him. And, and throughout her time there, she consistently went in and tried to treat those there with compassion and show them love. When... Um, 1937 came um, after she had been doing that for all those years. In 1937, she was killed uh, in a car accident. And, of course, her husband was, was dealing with that, and the acting warden showed up to the prison that day. And they lived, the, the, the home of the warden was about three-quarters of a mile from the prison. And when, when the acting warden showed up that day, the warden had already gotten out, and uh, the prisoners were all toward the gate. Um, and you could tell they were all incredibly emotional uh, about having heard the news that this woman who had showed them the love of Christ for all those years had passed. And the acting warden stood there and he said, um, you guys know where the house is. I'm going to open the gate and I want you to go pay your respects to you. Um, her body was, uh, was lying at the house in a casket. Go pay your respects and then come back. They didn't send a guard with them. And all the prisoners went. They had to respect. And everyone came back. Why? Because for that decade and a half, Catherine Laws has showed them the love of Jesus. We're called to show people the love of Jesus Christ. Second thing. So not only do we understand that the that it impacts how we respond to those who are hurting around us. But the second thing is live knowing Jesus is looking at small, everyday actions. Live knowing that Jesus is looking at small, everyday actions. So sometimes we, when we think about the impact that we have on the world, we think about some grand gesture where somebody gives a million dollars or or somebody does something incredibly heroic, and I'm all in favor of giving that much money and doing something heroic, but we, we sometimes minimize the, the everyday small opportunities. We, we see somebody who, who is in need of help. We see a prisoner who needs a letter sent to them. We see somebody who needs this little help with utilities, and, and we kind of act like that's not a big deal. 
But again, looking at 35 and 36, notice none of these are life-changing, life-defining moments. They're all small things. Somebody was hungry, and I gave him something to eat. Somebody was thirsty, and I gave him something to drink. Somebody was a stranger, and I invited them in for a meal. Somebody needed clothes, and I gave them a shirt and a pair of pants. Somebody was sick, and I went to check on them. Somebody was in prison, and I went and visited them. None of those are, are gigantic, life-changing things, and yet that's what we're called to do. And sometimes we, we think if it's not something big, then God isn't going to work through it. So we need to understand it's in those everyday moments that Jesus is calling us to go and show his love and compassion as an outflow of the salvation that is in our lives. Doug Bothell tells of a time back in 1967 where he was in India doing mission work and he came back down with tuberculosis. And as he was put in a TB ward, he didn't speak the language yet. He was relatively new to the mission field. And so he, he, he couldn't talk with the people in the TB ward, but he had literature uh, Christian literature in the language uh, there, and so he tried to share it with folks there. Nobody was the least bit interested. Nobody wanted anything that, that he had to share. One night, he was awakened by uh, another um, a patient there who it was an older man. He was trying to get up out of his bed, and, and Doug really wasn't sure what he was trying to do, but he looked like he was trying to get up out of his bed, and then he ended up laying back down and Doug wasn't sure, but when he woke up in the morning, there was a horrible stench in the in the sanitarium, and it was because the man he had been trying to get up and go to the bathroom, and he hadn't he hadn't had the strength to do that, so he fell back down, ended up using the bathroom all over his bed, and when the workers came in, they were not the least sympathetic, but they were very rough and handling him. One of them kind of punched him and slapped him to, to the side because of the mess that he had made, and he heard the the older man just laying there whimpering after the interaction. When Doug woke up in the middle of the night uh, the next night, he heard the man again trying to get out of bed. And so he got up and he walked over and when he tapped the man on the shoulder because he was behind him, the man kind of held, you know, he, he went to protect himself like he was going to get hit again. But Doug smiled at him and he went from behind and lifted him up under his armpits there to, to hold him took him to the bathroom, turned him around. His bathroom was literally a hole in the floor. Held him under his armpits there while he used the bathroom and then took him back and laid him in bed. And and as the man was laid back down, he reached up and grabbed Doug's head and pulled him to himself and gave him a kiss on his cheek. The next morning when Doug woke up, there was a, a another patient that had come over and he brought him a cup of coffee and he handed it to him. And then he motioned like he wanted to read the literature that Doug had, that he had tried to give out before, and no one was interested in. In the days that followed, he was able to share that literature with a number of the people in the ward who were interested in him. And Doug said, I wanted to share the love of Christ with people, but I didn't realize what it would take was a stick to the bathroom. It, was, it wasn't a big grand gesture. It was... A person in need, a trip to the bathroom, and back. Who are the people that God has put in our past this week who don't need something, they don't need a million dollars, they don't need some grand gesture, they need us to show compassion to them in the midst of the struggle that they are going through? Third thing is this. Live knowing Jesus is walking around Madison. Live knowing 
Jesus is walking around Madison. Look at verses 40 and 45. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Hopping down to 45, he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Mother Teresa talked about seeing Jesus in his distressing disguise. And that's a phrase that has hung with me. That oftentimes when Jesus shows up, he doesn't show up at the front of a beautiful sanctuary, but instead he shows up in that person lying on the street. He shows up in a person at work who's a little bit annoying, but they're annoying because they're struggling and they can't handle all the stress that is on them. Jesus shows up, not often in glory, but he often shows up in his distressing disguise as the least of these around us. And so we are called, as we see the least of these, to go and realize that as we handle those people, as we help those people, as we show compassion to those people, according to that verse, we are showing compassion to Jesus. I read a story the other day about a professor, Professor Smith, and he he liked using object lessons in his class. And, uh, it was a Christian college, and he invited uh, one day when the class was in, he invited each of them. He said, I want you to, um, we're going to do an exercise today. He said, I want you to draw a picture of the person that you dislike the most, that, that annoys you to no end. It can be a relative, it can be a coworker, the person that just, just you can't stand. Well, everybody was getting into it. They, they had their pencils, and everybody, was, you know, some of the drawings were pretty crude in terms of they didn't look like them, but, you know, they were drawing this picture. He said, after everybody drew the picture, now here's what we're going to do. And he pulled out a dartboard and put it on the wall. And he said, um, now, uh, I've got some darts. I want you to put the picture of that person on the dartboard. And everybody gets a turn. I've got ten darts here. You get to throw the darts at the person as much as you want. And so everybody was getting into it. They were hurling it at their... There was just this great energy in the room. Everybody got to vent in that way about that, at the people that they were annoyed with. And then after everybody sat back down, he went back to the dartboard and he pulled it up a little bit and under the top thing, he pulled out a sheet of paper. And it was a picture of Jesus. And the picture of Jesus now having gone through, you know, 30 students throwing 10 darts each was, was incredibly disfigured. And he read them this passage and he said, what you have done to the least of these You've done to me. I, I don't really like that thought. That the person that annoys me, that the person that, that, that I struggle with, that the person that is doing something that I don't really like, that that could be Jesus in my life. And that I'm to love them the way that I'm to love Jesus. As we look at this passage and we think about it, um, Jesus is giving us information about what's going to happen at final judgment. And what he tells us is that there needs to be an outflow from the salvation that has happened in our heart and how we treat those around us. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. How have you treated Jesus this last week? Okay.
Father, um, we like the idea that salvation is focused on us. And we struggle with the idea that you want us to love everybody. So Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand what you're calling us to. That the true salvation makes a difference in our life. It changes who we are and how we act. And one of the ways it changes us is that we have compassion for those at the very bottom, for those at the edges, for those that no one else cares about. Father, I pray you'd help us to live that out far better than we are now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.